1: To set your free. How you doing? I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only true democracy in talk radio. Happy hump day here on your show of for and by you in this hour. Not one, but two great guests joining us as day after day. The news never lets up, which is good for talk host and, you know, for the media and uh, but it keeps a lot of people busy. And speaking of busy, yesterday I was sitting getting my hair done. My hairdresser saw me on the phone, and she's like, you know, uh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm working. And she said, yeah, but on the East Coast it's after 6 p.m. And I said, well, don't tell the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals that because this is going live. For many of you that listened, for many of you that watched, we're going to talk about what happened. Many of us saw very fiery judges keeping lawyers on both sides of this issue on their heels regarding this travel ban and an appeal and what the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals um, will will do. Many of us uh, hoping I've had anxiety about this. Joining us now is Director of Advocacy for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the AILA. They've been on many times before. We love this organization. They work hard. They know this stuff. And Greg Chen joins us. Greg, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you for taking the time.
0: Thank you, Leslie, so much for having me on the show. Pleasure to be here.
1: Um, first of all, from an attorney's eyes, because I am not, um, and uh, watching and, and listening, um, what, just what were some of the things that you came away uh, with uh, from? Because a lot of the attorneys that I spoke to prior to talking to you today on the air were, were somewhat surprised at um, how uh, ill-prepared, perhaps, that the uh, government's representation was. Did you feel that way?
0: Uh yes, I did come away with that impression. Uh and just take a quick step back. So we're talking about here is the argument that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals heard yesterday on uh the temporary restraining order and the government, US government had appealed that directly. Uh and one of the things that uh, points that very much struck me. Uh, was regarding the constitutionality and the lawfulness of this order, which the state of Washington and Minnesota, the Attorney generals had challenged. And we can talk about the constitutionality and MOAP, which I think is, is really at the core of this issue. Uh, but to your question about preparation of the U.S. government, uh, they stated several times that this order, this executive order by Simon Donald Trump, uh, was done to protect national security of our country, and that the co- these na- seven nations, the na- nationals of whom are now being banned, uh, that they, it was a risk assessment that these people should not be allowed in. And when they were asked, what evidence does the Department of Justice have of these countries being actual risks? Well, the government attorney said, well, we don't have any of that evidence, at least we don't have it yet. And for the fact that they issued an order now uh, more than two weeks ago, uh, and they still don't have that kind of evidence laid out, demonstrates the lack of preparedness, the poorly conceived aspect of this order, as well as the fact that it's just irrational. And we can talk more about why these people and why these countries were chosen. And I'll just say up front that no American has ever been killed in a terrorist attack in the United States. That was carried out by a national of these now banned countries. So, Uh, um, why were these countries picked?
1: Um, a couple of things, and, and let me play devil's advocate to that. Um, the, it, there is a lot of uh, information, even evidence out there, um, that shows that the Obama administration actually had looked at these seven countries as potential threats. Uh, some say that because he couldn't do an into- well, we'll get to the, the, the second part of that. But um, uh, does that hold any water? Because that's a former administration and, and a, a different political party in power during that administration.
0: So I have heard that argument being made, that this wasn't Trump's, P- President Trump's decision of these seven countries whose nationals are now banned, uh, but it was done before by the previous administration. And just to be clear, it wasn't actually President Obama who identified these first. Uh, what's re- referenced in the executive order is an act of Congress, uh, and uh, that was the, the basis for this. But let's be very clear. What that Decision by Congress did now just over a year ago was to uh, not allow these seven countries to participate in an expedited entry program uh, that allowed people to come from various countries uh, without requiring them to go through actually getting a visa. Uh, so now, those nationals of those seven countries, after Congress acted a year ago, uh, could still come into the country. They just needed to get visas as most other countries typically do. It's a far leap now for this current administration to say, okay, we are going to categorically, flatly ban everybody from coming in, including including the people who already were cleared and screened and had visas who were nationals of those seven countries. Those people had already been carefully checked and now suddenly none of them are allowed in.
1: Um, let's talk about confusion, because I know a lot of people, even educated people, who know and understand our three branches of government, which I think sometimes is questionable whether or not our own president does. But we, when we look at an executive order, let's use uh, Barack Obama's executive order in his first week to close Gitmo, Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay is still open because the president's order alone uh, can't do what Congress must do, which is agree and you know provide the funding for that. So some people are confused how Donald Trump on one day can write this, the next day, People are detained uh, you know, and uh, turned around almost like a deported uh, situation, uh, if you will, without any action from Congress. It does this happen specifically because of the president's authority with regard to national security?
0: Well, so the president does have uh, authority, uh, obviously, over national security issues and also to regulate and to make sure to screen properly uh, the individuals that are coming into this country uh, for nationals on visas uh, and also refugees. Uh, and. By taking this step here, what uh, the chaos that you referred to was something that was very much referenced in the Washington State uh, and Minnesota State Attorney General's brief, where they said literally this order that was done without consultation, clearly without consultation from the Secretary of Homeland Security, Department of State, uh, that it unleashed chaos in the country, because suddenly you have not only the people that were planning immediately to travel or who were literally on airplanes already traveling when on Friday, January 27th, the order came down, that they had no idea if they would be able to enter, many were stuck at those airports. But... The impact is far broader. Uh, we are talking about impact on families waiting for their loved ones to return or wanting to be able to travel and not sure if they can travel to see family and then come back in the United States. Uh, we saw businesses uh, that are now pulling back on their travel plans, pulling back on plans to engage in business or engage in conferences uh, because of this. And uh, it was remarkable the number of briefs that were filed by uh, notable affected uh, companies, Uh, one in particular, a brief filed by 97 of the major tech giants that we've all heard of. This is Intel, Microsoft, Apple, Google, eBay, Facebook, that said, look, this order will hinder our company's ability to attract talent. It's going to impose costs on us, and businesses are going to move elsewhere because they can't do this effectively. And we actually had uh, a, a story of a 24 year old Iraqi national who's a, a software engineer at Facebook. He works in Seattle and lives in Seattle. Uh, he's here on a work visa. Now, he happened to be in Vancouver visiting his younger brother and family in Vancouver for a few days. And when word got out that there might be a travel ban coming, his counsel advised him to come back immediately. He didn't want to leave his family, but he did because he didn't want to get stuck. And so he came back to Seattle. And so he said, look, uh, I've now had to cancel my Facebook business-related travel to different countries because I don't know if I'm going to be able to come back. And that's the kind of impact that this poorly conceived, poorly implemented plan will have on the United States. It's going to hurt the American economy. It's going to hurt our communities.
1: I want to talk about national security uh, once more before we go to religion, uh, if you don't mind. And um, I'm going to completely botch it. So just remember, I I thought that one of these three judges, and it is a uh, three-judge panel for those that weren't watching or were confused by how many voices you were hearing, uh, that one of the judges did uh, press very hard with regard to national security and with regard to the president's ability. And the question came up, and you as an attorney would answer this better, as to whether a court should be making a decision – Uh, with regard to national security, which is more a part of the executive branch.
0: Right, and so I'm glad you asked that question, and that goes to whether or not the state of Washington, Minnesota, their attorney generals, can uh, bring this case before the court, uh, and whether or not the court has the authority to review this decision, this order by the president, based on national security. And what is remarkable uh, is the... Statement by the Department of Justice, which is essentially that uh, the order is unrevealable by this court, even if It violates the Constitution or is unlawful. And it seems that the Department of Justice has forgotten that the Constitution serves as a critical check on presidential power, and that the judiciary is the branch of government that's designed to implement that check. And so what we're talking about here is balancing two things, and now we're getting into the constitutional claims aspect of this issue. there are you know, the the main claims here are one under the first amendment to the constitution uh is the federal government violating the establishment clause which forbids the government from favoring one religion over another and secondly under the fifth amendment to the constitution whether the federal government is violating discriminatory protections that say look you can't uh favor one religion again over another or one group over another and discriminate against them and And what's striking here is, first of all, that we have uh, so much evidence of discriminatory intent without even having gone to discovery, because it was done on an emergency basis. And that's what the Solicitor General said of Washington State, uh, that... We have President Trump having said, "Look, he's going to execute a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the country." Uh, he's made in the policy itself. He prefers Christians over other kinds of refugees. Uh, so there's there's some clear just, uh, evidence here showing uh, intent. And what the, what the Department of Justice said is this intent can't even be considered. It's unreviewable by the courts, uh, and and that is a, a shocking statement that. Uh, would place the president's authority over the fundamental constitution protections.
1: Um, also, uh, the president... We're going to take a break. When we come back, if can, uh, you can know, talk to this point... Well, you know, I'll ask when we come back. I'm Leslie Marshall. We'll be back with our guest and with you. Pick up the phone and join us if you have a question. Just one more segment and trying to get a lot of information out there. But the number is always because it is your show. 8886-LESLIE-888-653-7543 is the number. We will be back with Greg Chen, who is Director of Advocacy for the AILA, the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Great folks there. Follow them on Twitter. Um, at A-I-L-A National. Follow Greg at Greg Chen, A-I-L-A That's C-H-E-N. And the website is A-I-L-A org. Back with Greg. Back with you right after this. Don't go away please.
0: Leslie Marshall The Simple Truth in a Complicated World. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE-
1: of advocacy for the American Immigration Lawyers Association the AILA Greg thank you for holding welcome back Donald Trump said on national television um, you know that it was pretty uh, clear that he said that you know Christians were not being allowed into the country and that is not factual as you know when you look at the numbers uh, but a video like that can uh, is that something judges can look at and and you know look look into uh, adding to consideration when they're making such a decision because obviously the question as to whether this was a religious ban um, uh, obviously is one of the considerations here.
0: Yes, so that's a good question, and uh, a court can look at newspaper reports, uh, and they would be restricted to what's submitted into evidence. Uh, so the uh, parties here, meaning the Department of Justice for the U.S. and the attorneys general for uh, the states, would need to submit that evidence in, and it's up to the the court, the judge, to weigh the evidence before it and say, okay, well, Donald Trump made this statement. How much credit do I give it? How much does it indicate that? This policy is actually implementing his statement that he's going to execute a total and complete shutdown of Muslims. Is that really what drives it? I think what is... Uh, so, so that's an evidentiary issue, and, and yes, it can be entered. What I think the court will want to weigh is uh, that in information, that evidence of discriminatory intent uh, made by President Trump and other statements that he made as well, Uh against the assertions by the federal government that this was a selection of seven nations uh, that was based on risk assessment. Uh, What I think really undermines and betrays the lack of rationality in the federal government's argument is that, as I said before, no American has ever been killed in a terrorist attack in the U.S. by national one of those countries. And in fact, since 1980, of the 16 Islamic his, uh, terrorist attacks in the United States that have killed Americans, um, none of those were national, those seven countries that are banned. And that's based on a global terrorism database examination. Uh, so it really demonstrates why there isn't a clear rationality to this. And that's why we had, in fact, an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief submitted by uh, military veterans, national security experts, including uh, former secretaries of state, CIA chiefs, former DHS secretaries, saying, hey, look, uh, this act will actually endanger our troops in the field. This will actually endanger our ability to gather intelligence and will undermine the trust with the Muslim communities that we're trying to build those relationships with so we can be more secure as a nation.
1: Uh, the Embassy News reported right before we came back from break, Greg, that the Ninth District Court will not be issuing a decision on the immigration executive order today. Now, sometimes in a criminal court of law, attorneys will be like, that's a good sign, that's a bad sign, when the jury takes longer. These are not jurors, these are federal judges, a panel of three who've said that they will make their decision this week. Are you surprised they're not issuing a decision, and does that mean that it's just because they, I, I mean, not that you have a crystal ball, but what would your takeaway from this be for those? who have their fingers crossed and are holding their breath?
0: I, I don't have much uh, to draw upon, just by the fact they did not issue a decision today, since the argument was uh, less than 24 hours ago right now, uh, for them to weigh what is a, a very complicated uh, case with a lot of uh, weight attached to it. Um, I will say that from the American Immigration Lawyers Association perspective, when we look at this case, uh, given the fact that the impact is so broad and so significant, uh Contrary to what the president has said, and the, the president's uh, spokesperson said, Look, it's only 109 people that are affected by this who couldn't come into the airports. Uh, that's a gross misrepresentation of the fact that we have tens of thousands of people who um, have visas that have been granted after a thorough screening. Uh, so the impact is incredibly broad. And we have a, a case where there's remarkably strong evidence of discriminatory intent that violates key principles uh, freedom of, you know, the, the establishment clause in the first amendment uh the due process and equal protection clause of the fifth amendment we have strong cases of sh- uh, information showing that there's discriminatory intent here and just a very weak government case about how it chose these countries so I if you, if, if in, go- in,
1: in in a word if you were to go to vegas you would be voting for the stay and not for the government's victory in this
0: That's right. I think the Ninth Circuit will not be granting what the U.S. government wants in this case.
1: All right. Thank you, Greg, for taking the time. Gregory Chen, Director of Advocacy for the American Immigration Lawyers Association, the AILA. Follow them on Twitter at AILANational. Follow Greg at Greg Chen, AILA. And go to their website, AILA.org. guest in the second half of this hour on this hump day. Thank you for joining us. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy in talk radio. Allison Zeeve is our guest in this half, second half of the hour, director of the Litigation Group for Public Citizen, a national nonprofit advocacy organization that has been standing up to corporate power and holding government accountable for 45 years. More than a pleasure to have Allison with us this afternoon. Allison, good afternoon and welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, the uh, President of the United States, Donald Trump, has uh, been very busy with pen in hand and papers with EO at the top, executive order. Um, as of late, uh, the President has another, yet another executive order, and this order is on uh, regulations. Now, consumer, environmental, and workers groups have band together to file a legal challenge to Trump's one-in, two-out executive order. First off, can you explain to the folks what this executive order is uh, specifically so they understand? The executive
2: order is called Reducing Regulation and Controlling Regulatory costs. And essentially what the order does is it requires that each federal agency, when it's issuing a new rule, to identify two already existing ones that it's going to repeal And then at the time that it issues, that it finalizes a new regulation, the agency has to repeal at least two other regulations so that the cost of the new one is offset by the cost of the two that that are being repealed. And in doing that, the order makes clear that the agencies are only looking at costs, they're not looking at benefits, and they're not even looking at, the
1: net of costs and benefits. So if benefits exceed costs, that doesn't matter for purposes of this rule. So on January 30th, the president signed this, directing federal agencies, as you just said, to repeal two federal regulations for every new rule that they issue. Um, Your organization, Public Citizen, along with the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense, and the Communication Workers of America, uh, your three organizations are suing uh, the Trump administration to block this executive order, correct?
2: That's right. We filed suit this morning against the president and the head of the Office of Management and Budget that the executive order directs to sort of take the lead in making sure agencies follow the order, and then a number of
1: of federal
2: agencies
1: as well that will be affected by the order. Um, you, as uh, one of the plaintiffs, your organization, are asking the court to issue a declaration that the order cannot be lawfully implemented and barring the agencies from implementing the order. So, question. That folks that don't understand exactly how the law works when suing a president over an executive order, uh, does that mean when there is an act, when there's active litigation or pending litigation that nothing can happen? It's a standstill, or are these agencies implementing that order until such time as the case goes through or completes the court system? agencies
2: are still following the order at this time and will continue doing so until such time
1: as we're successful in obtaining an injunction from the court. Can you explain this a bit for people that are looking at the fiscal side? Because many people voted for Donald Trump based on fiscal issues, the economy, uh, perhaps not knowing what they would get. Many people regretting their decision and their vote, as we see all over social media now. Um, The order Requires new rules to have a net cost of zero this fiscal year, and does not take into account the value of the benefits of public protections. Could you uh, expand on that a bit for the folks listening? Sure. So,
2: when an agency issues a new rule, it counts. It it is already required by an older executive order uh, that goes back to the Reagan administration to quantify all the costs of the of the new rule and the benefits. So the costs are usually a little easier. If if a motor vehicle safety standard is directing companies to install a new safety device in in our cars or to make sure that the roof or the sides of the car are strong enough to sustain a certain impact, it's easier it's easy to quantify that and say how much is it going to cost the automobile industry to comply with this rule, and that's that's mostly what the costs are. Um, on the benefit side is uh, how many lives is this going to save? How many preventable serious injuries is it going to save? What's the savings to our health care system and, um, and consumer health and safety? So the, normally when an agency issues a rule, it balances the costs and the benefits. Um, some some, in some instances, uh, particularly with some environmental statutes, cost is not supposed to be considered at all. And in some statutes, they, that is, when the agency is deciding what's the best way to go forward, it's not supposed to think about costs. And in some, the agency is supposed to think about costs. Um, so, in this rule, with this new executive order, the agencies are still, it's a little confusing because they're still supposed to do the cost benefit analysis they've always done but now they also do a separate purely cost analysis so that on the one hand they look at costs to industry of requiring a new safety device, um, but without any regard to the benefits that people will, will uh, experience from the sa- increased safety, um, the, the agency is now supposed to look at two other rules. So for instance, to go back to motor vehicles, if the agency wanted a new standard about automatic emergency braking, and we see a lot of cars now with automatic emergency, bri- commercials now showing automatic emergency braking, there's no standard for it. Uh, if the agency wanted to issue a new rule to require certain automatic emergency braking in cars and it worked to a certain level at a certain speed, then it might have to repeal a standard for uh, the rear view cameras that the agency ordered a couple years ago or the roof crush standard, or something like that. An easy example is energy efficiency standards. Uh, The agency has, we have a number of energy efficiency standards. How how energy efficient does your refrigerator have to be, your air conditioner, um, your furnace? And there are costs in creating uh, equipment that is that energy efficient, but the savings to consumer, to consumers from the energy efficiency is tremendous. But under this new order, the agency would consider only the costs and not the huge uh, benefits to consumers everywhere across the country. And as a result, we might not see energy efficiency standards, or we might see one traded off for another. As your refrigerator gets more efficient,
1: your furnace could get less efficient according to the federal uh, standards. This suit was filed in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, correct? That's right. And the defendants that are named are the president, the acting director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and the current are acting secretaries and directors of more than a dozen executive departments and agencies. First, before we go forward, in your time at Public Citizen, is this the first time that you uh, your organization has been engaged with uh, an active lawsuit specifically naming as one of the defendants the president of the United States?
2: I think it. Mm, I think it might be in my time here since 1994, but I I don't know if it's that's true going back to when we first started litigating in 1972. You know, just
1: just listening to what you, you, you say and the allegation in the complaint that the agencies cannot lawfully comply with the president's order because doing so would actually violate the statutes under which the agencies operate and the Administrative Procedure Act. This seems to go in line with a lot of the executive orders, which is sign now, figure out what you've just signed later. And I say that because this seems to be yet another order. Where it's not just overreach, but it's uh, you know it violates statutes, and it almost seems physically impossible to bring about what the executive order is stating. I think that's
2: right. I I think that for I think the order shows no understanding of how rulemaking works in our federal government, and it, it the rule is so unworkable that for agencies to comply, they would necessarily have to act in arbitrary and unlawful ways, uh, and if they do nothing at all, if they decide, hey, we, c- we can't possibly comply with this, so we're just not going to issue rules, well, then they would also be violating the law, because through federal statutes, Congress has instructed the agencies to engage in rulemaking to uh, help protect health, safety, the environment, consumer finance, any number of things. So for an agency to do nothing violates the law,
1: but under this order, they they're really in a in a catch twenty um, two. I also want to uh, talk about when you when you just look at setting rules for health, safety, the environment, and even the economy. Who who does this benefit? I mean, these this seems to be, have enormous benefits on big business. The uh, approach through uh, Don, uh, Donald Trump, President Trump's executive order on this.
2: Oh, I think clearly the executive order is an attempt to appease big business. Regulated industry is the only part of society that would benefit from hamstringing the regulators this way. Um, Protections against abuses by Wall Street banks or uh, energy companies or um, any big corporation, manufacturing corporations, the. The regulation of those companies are all for the benefit of consumer health and workers, the workers and the environment. Uh, the agencies aren't regulating just to have something to do with their time, but because Congress has charged them with protecting
1: all of us, I want to look at basically, you know, if this goes forward and if this stands, what happens. And is it fair to say, or am I being overly dramatic, that this would, this executive order would result in lasting damage to the ability for our government to save lives, to protect our environment, to police Wall Street, to keep consumers safe, and to fight discrimination?
2: If the the agency somehow found a way to comply with this order, then I I think you're right, the damage would be long, significant and long-term. I think that's true with many of the actions we've seen over the past two weeks, and, and it's certainly true with this. The workers who are, for example, not protected from uh, a hazard in the workplace, they can't they're going to be injured today and next year, and the year after that, until a better safety standards in place. One of the the pending uh, standards to protect people in the workplace is to protect healthcare workers, such as nurses, nurses and others who are exposed to infectious diseases. And the Department of Labor had determined that that those workers needed a stronger standard. Well, obviously, protecting people from infectious diseases is something that is. Not just benefits the nurses, although certainly it does. But the more people that get it, the more an infectious diseases spread, of course. Um, but this will totally, this kind of order totally hamstrings the agency and protects them, or uh, makes it more difficult for the agency to protect those nurses and therefore to protect all of us. And in a case like that, with respect to infectious diseases, though also with respect to the automobile standards and other environmental standards and other workplace safety standards and other consumer finance standards, um, it'll take years to recover. And the people that were injured in the meantime,
1: the the regulation will always be too late for them. Also, when you just look at um, exit polls after the last election uh, on November 9th, um, both left and right or people, you know, voting uh, on November 8th, really – were casting the vote for Donald Trump, many of them, because they wanted an outsider. They wanted a non-politician who could not be bought uh, by Wall Street, who wasn't going to benefit the corporation, but make America great again and, you know, give back to the people. But this would change our government's role, essentially, from one of protecting the people, protecting the public to protecting profits of these corporations. So this is completely contrary to the will of the people, and the reason many people elected this president who just signed this executive order on January 30th, correct? I agree with you entirely.
2: To the extent the, the reports are right about how uh, Working America came out so strongly for candidate Trump, um, he's, through an order like this, he's doing something that will only make life harder for them, Uh that health and safety of all of us is put at risk by an executive order such as this. And the establishment that, uh, that is so much a focus of the Trump campaign, the establishment is the corporations that will benefit from this order. They could have written it. They couldn't have asked for a better order.
1: How long does something like this take for people that aren't familiar with the court system, and for people that are just shaking their head at the unprecedented number of lawsuits against this president when he hasn't even been in his new job for 30 days? Well,
2: in the, the typical schedule is that we, we filed today and we'll, we'll serve them today. That is, send a copy of the complaint to each of the defendants. They have 60 days to either file an answer or a motion. We can file a motion at any time, though, and we hope to have one on file well before that 60-day time period. Then there will be a briefing schedule that is up to the judge, so hopefully that won't take more than a month or so, and then she would issue an order. Um, uh, hmm. So if, if we do decide to move for a preliminary injunction, which is to try to get an order up front at the start of the case, um, that could be a, a couple months away, and if we went straight to summary judgment, which means asking the judge to just decide the whole case now on the on the papers that we file, that would probably take uh, a little longer, late late spring.
1: All right, thank you. And I thank you for being with us, Allison. Allison Zee, director you. of the Litigation Group for Public Citizen, a national nonprofit advocacy organization that has been standing up to corporate power and holding government accountable for 45 years. She joined them back in 1994. In 2009, she became the group's director and director of the Supreme Court Assistance Project. She also serves as General Counsel of Public Citizen. On Twitter, follow Public Citizen at public underscore citizen. And the website is citizen.org. We're going to take a break, and when we come back live from our nation's capital, Talk Media News will be with us. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter, at Leslie Marshall. Like our fan page, facebook.com forward slash The Leslie Marshall Show. Go to our website, sign up for the free newsletter, leslemarshallshow.com. And on Instagram, follow me there, at Leslie Marshall Talker. More of you follow me, more photos I will post. We'll be back after this. Don't go away. So is he live from our nation's capital with talk media news. Justin Duckham joining us. Uh, Justin, good afternoon. Happy hump day. Uh, Donald Trump, our president, has publicly now is publicly going after judges as they are deciding in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the three judge panel that will not be making a decision today, but they are looking at and weighing in on that travel ban. Tell us more.
3: Uh, Exactly. Today, during an audience of law enforcement personnel, uh, Trump said that the court suspension of the ban was sad and disgraceful and then went on to essentially accuse the courts of being too political. Uh, Ironically, he said, I don't ever want to call a court biased, so I won't call a court biased, before essentially going on and calling them just that, and went on to talk about the hearing that was going on last night, um, saying that some of the judge's behavior was uh, out of bounds, and really just kind of weighing in on a topic that a lot of his close advisors have sort of, um, at least off the record, advised him to not weigh in as publicly on.
1: Uh, this is unprecedented, isn't it? I, I mean, I have never, whether it's a Democrat or Republican in my lifetime, uh, seen or heard um, things like this, quite juvenile, unpresidential, and very clear that if, Don, if anybody uh, it, it dares to question anything Donald Trump says, um, they're, they're wrong, they're the bad guys, whether they're uh, a news network, um, whether they're federal judges, um, or whether it's even one of his own staff.
3: Uh no, exactly. You know, this is something that uh, a lot of people were hoping would kind of burn out during the campaign. Uh, you know, initially he had gone after Judge Gonzalo Curiel, uh, and there was a lot of people who criticized him for doing that, saying that it probably wasn't wise for him to be going after a federal judge. Uh, in this instance, it was based on... Um, You know, race and saying that was not a good idea. Um, You know, ultimately, at one point, he said that he was going to become more presidential and start falling in line. But comments like these have certainly um, sort of reawakened the fact that this is just, um, you know, sort of a new normal that people are becoming accustomed to under Trump, which is uh, certainly a break from precedent to say the
1: least. In this last minute, Justin, secondly, the White House doubles down on the Nordstrom attack, which is about his daughter's business.
3: Uh, Trump tweeted out that um, Nordstrom had acted very unfairly by dropping his daughter's clothing line, and then the official presidential Twitter account retweeted that, which is um, you know something that has certainly raised some concern. Today, White House Press Secretary John, er, uh, Sean Spicer doubled down on this, saying that this was a direct attack against Trump's policies coming from Nordstrom, and saying that essentially Trump was just coming to the defense of his daughter. Nordstrom has said that this was not a political decision, was based off of
1: lagging performance. Exactly. And even though the lagging performance may have been based on people's politics, that's the power of our purse. Thank you, Justin Duckham. Talk Media News. I'm Leslie Marshall.